0: it's great to have you on I'm excited to have you and for the people that don't know who you are please please, please tell us about you
1: well i uh, i i'm an am a writer um I've been writing books about ghosts and strange phenomena and the paranormal uh, since uh, about 1994 uh so it is my day job this is what I do on a regular basis writing and researching about the strange and the unusual and uh mostly the haunted that seems to be my my main focus but um yeah i um i i've been doing this for a long time i've done a a lot of documentaries and radio shows i've got a podcast the american hauntings podcast uh buddy of mine talked me into starting a couple of years ago so we've been doing that for a while now um we um we founded the the first ghost conference in the country back in 1997, uh, the America conference, and we've only missed it one time in 25 years. When, of course, was last year <laughs> Dur- during the pandemic, we had to postpone. But um, yeah, it's um, it's a it's a full time thing for me. I uh, I love what I do. I love to you know get involved in, in anything to do with the paranormal. So I'm. You know, keeps me busy. Keeps me off the street. As, as- you know
0: what you're, what? you're what we call one of the Godfathers of paranormal. Yeah. Yeah. This,
1: uh, you know. this. <laughs> Makes me feel <laughs> old, but you know, it's nice, uh, I guess.
0: <laughs> well, you know what's funny? When I started out 15 years ago, I was one of the young ones and now I'm like an old one too, yeah. doing this, doing you know, doing this yeah. stuff. So I know <laughs> the feeling.
1: So um,
0: I understand you've done some research on the Exorcist house.
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah, quite a bit on the case. That's for sure. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I I got interested in that story. I was living in the St. Louis area in the mid '90s, and you know, I had been hearing that the you know the true story of The Exorcist, the or or the, the the book and the movie of The Exorcist that William Peter Blatty had had done was based on a true story. And um, so I I got interested in it. I knew that it was supposed to have happened in St. Louis. And so I wanted to find out more. And I started digging into it. And this was in the 90s. This was uh, the very, very infancy of the Internet. So you had to do your research in person back then. Uh, There were still quite a few people. Well, I would say quite a few, but a number of people who had been involved in the exorcism who were still alive at that point. So I started making the rounds. I, you know, I went to the libraries, I went to the research areas, I went to the locations that existed at the time. Um, I talked to the people who were really there. I did interviews with uh, a couple of different priests. Um, with um, some people who had worked at the hospital uh, later, I would interview a monk that I didn't know was alive, and this was in 2014. Uh, that was the last survivor of the uh, of the the exorcism, except for the boy himself who was involved. Now, as I started to do the research, of course, I found out what most of us take for granted now is that the person who was possessed or believed to be possessed in the story was not a little girl William Peter Blatty um, you know changed that himself you know he had gotten interested in the story when it actually happened he'd read a little blurb in the newspaper and at the time he was a student uh, studying to be a priest at Georgetown University in Washington DC so he went to an advisor uh, said he heard about the story and and the uh, the priest confirmed for him that it was true and that he knew some of the people involved and that there had been a diary that had been kept by one of the priests involved. Well, Blatty wanted to see the diary at that point. He didn't see it for some time later, but he did get a chance to talk to one of the priests involved, Father Bowdern, who he based his um, character of Father Marin on, Father Bowdern. And um, Father Bowdern had told him that he wanted him to try and, and protect the identity of the boy, uh, who was in the case. And so Vladdy changed it to a girl. Eventually, he was able to look at the diary, used a lot of that material in his book that became the movie. And um, you'd be surprised how much of it, I mean, nobody flew out a window, nobody's head spun around or anything. But in the real story, he actually used quite a bit of that material uh, for his um, for his fictional work. Well, anyway, to go back to St. Louis and my interest in it, I found out that it was a boy. Um, I found out where his aunt and uncle had lived in St. Louis, where he had been staying. Um, The rectory at that point where part of the exorcism took place had already been torn down, uh, as had the... Ah, uh, wing of the hospital where he had been kept in the secure ward in the psychiatric wing of the hospital. It was gone. It had been replaced by a new hospital. But the one thing that was still there was that house in Belnor, which is a suburb on the north side of St. Louis, where the aunt and uncle lived. And you know, we refer to it as the Exorcist House, and that's accurate because that's where the exorcism actually began. Um, in fact, it began um, in 1949 on March 16th. Well, so we've just passed the anniversary of that. So it it um, it actually began in their home and things became so violent and um, they eventually had to move him out of the house because of the activity that was going on.
0: Now, was, <laughs> what was he doing, what I was doing what I was the, the Ouija like, <laughs> like in the book? In the book?
1: <laughs> no, 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 um, I, you know, that, um, I did, as I think you know, we we talked about it, you and I, um, that I had recently done a documentary called "The Exorcism of Roland Doe," mm-hmm. uh, which was on, which is is still streaming on Discovery Plus. But you'll notice in the part about the Ouija board that I don't ever appear in that part because I made it real clear that that wasn't true. Um, he R- R- Roland's aunt um who supposedly came and visited him in Maryland never did um Tilly and her name was actually Matilda uh she uh she was in very poor health through all of Roland's life um he was a young boy at the time uh she was uh, quite a bit older uh, than he was of course she died when she was i believe 56 but she had extreme hypertension and diabetes and never traveled. Um, So she actually passed away in January of 1949, just a couple of weeks after the activity began in Roland's family's house in Maryland. So the the story about the Ouija board is a little bit of fiction affecting fact. Uh, When Blatty was writing this story, he knew he needed a reason why Reagan would become possessed. Well, Mm -hmm. in the real story, there isn't a reason, which is what makes the whole thing even scarier. Roland never did anything to invite this to happen to him. It just happened. And that I think is, is what makes this thing even scarier, but Blatty needed a reason for his book. So a Ouija board, because that was a, again, a hot thing in the late sixties, the occult had really started to take off Rosemary's baby, had come out. So all this stuff was going on. And a Ouija board seemed like something really ominous that he could introduce into the story. And somehow that has become part of the myth of the true story that there was a Ouija board involved. There wasn't. Um, but you know, that's that's how <laughs> that's how legends are born.
0: So what's you know what, what, what the this about as far as, as, far as um, the steps of having of them realizing he was possessed?
1: Well, in, in the beginning, everything started off with what uh, priests refer to as an infestation, uh, not necessarily a possession. Um, it was banging sounds, noises, scratching sounds. Um, Roland's bed shaking at night when he was trying to sleep. And then it it moved, it it goes through stages, according to all of the experts and and the current experts on exorcisms and possession. Um, Soon it began to affect Roland himself and it um, stepped up into something that was affecting his body, uh, his mind. He was going into trances at night. Um, He was shaking. He was convulsing. um, He was crying, screaming. Uh, His his parents reported to the priests who included in the diary, that he was barking like a dog. Um, He was using language that he'd never used before, uh, a 13-year-old boy in 1949. It's not like a 13-year-old boy now. Uh, it's a little different. You know, he was saying things he'd never said before and the family started to get very worried. Then when the marks started to appear on his body, the scratches and the the welts and the, the weird um, abrasions, they began to find underneath his pajamas. So it wasn't something he was doing on his own and they couldn't explain how it was happening, but these things kept appearing to the point that he would bleed. Um, they, you know, realized something very serious was going on. Well, they they contacted their family's minister, who they were Lutheran at the time. They uh, Part of the family was Lutheran, part of the family was Catholic, and that becomes a big part of the story. But um, they contacted their Lutheran minister, who believed that this was some sort of poltergeist case. Uh, he didn't think anything about possession. this was not in the worldview of anyone, even Catholics for the most part at that point, uh, but definitely not for a Lutheran minister. And uh, he believed it was something, you know, psychic, uh, something going on in Roland's mind that was causing the activity to occur. So he invited him to stay at his home. And while he was there, the, the minister witnessed the bed shaking. He witnessed uh, a chair tipping over, knocking, rolling out onto the floor. He also witnessed him lying down on the floor on a pallet and the blankets he was lying on just shifted all the way across the floor, slid across the room and underneath a bed. Well, he never stopped believing this was a poltergeist case, but the main reason for that is because he never witnessed anything that happened in St. Louis. He only saw what happened in Maryland. you know, legend goes that he was told to contact – the family was told to contact a priest because Catholics know about these kinds of things. I'm going to say that the Lutheran minister never said that, but it's a great line. If he didn't, he should have. You know, it's one of those, <laughs> you know, as part of the story. But um, there is also a, a moment in the documentary that I objected to, uh, and that's when the – they're going tests to try and um, and exercise him on the spot. For one thing, it never, for starters, it never happened, but there's lots of reasons why it couldn't happen. You can't just go around doing exorcisms. You have to get permission mm-hmm. to do things like that. And it takes quite a bit of time and a lot of evidence to say that you've seen this or witnessed this. And none of this, this priest only met Rowan one time when he met them at the church at St. James Church in Mount Rainier, Maryland, uh, and prayed with the family and gave them some candles to burn if the activity continued. That was the entire meeting with Father Hughes. Well, this story about him coming to the hospital to do an exorcism and Roland working a, a spring loose from the bed and slashing him and you know how he was oh. never able to lift his arm all the way again. And you know he went into a mental hospital because he was so shook up by this. None of this stuff happened during my research. I actually met with the current pastor of Saint Fr- of the of the church, Saint James Church, and. Uh, we went through the records, uh, Father Hughes's records from the time. And not only was there no note of anything like this in the records, but he certainly was never in the hospital and and never in an insane asylum, for sure, because he'd been performing baptisms and weddings and funerals constantly <laughs> during that time. So none of those things actually happened. I, it's it's, a, it's kind of people have a tendency to want to invent Things they think are more exciting to add to the story, where you don't need it. This story is exciting enough because it wasn't long after this that, after the family had put Roland in the hospital to see if they could find anything wrong with him, he got a clean bill of health from doctors and psychiatrists, that the marks continued to appear on his body. And eventually, after the family suggested maybe leaving town, to see if they could, you know, get this activity to stop somewhere else. Um, the word Lewis appeared on his body because that's where the family was from. They talked about going to St. Louis and they did. And that's how they ended up in the house in Belnor, and where the exorcism began a couple of weeks later, because the activity never stopped. One of Roland's cousins attended St. Louis University, which is a Catholic school in St. Louis, and she went to her advisor, Father Bishop, and told him what was happening. And that's how the priests actually got involved.
0: I find it interesting because I know as a paranormal investigator, the criteria, you know, the difference between a poltergeist and, and, and something that, that, that that's negative, I mean, it's there. I mean, if it, if it can lift, you know, four or five pounds and move four or five pounds right away, it's not. It's...
1: Yeah, well. And, you know,
0: uh,
1: the, the only excuse that I can offer for him is, again. Okay. All well, right. We lost. Yeah, we're
0: back. It's my. I have real, my, my internet's real <laughs> iffy here right now, so. Oh, okay. Okay.
1: But I, I just noticed you froze, and I thought, should <laughs> I stop talking? It seems bad. Yeah, my internet uh, has issues, so. Yeah. Well, the like I said, the only the only excuse I can make for uh, for uh, the, you know, Reverend Schultz, the Lutheran minister, is that he was very interested in psychic activity. In fact, he actually contacted J.B. Ryan at Duke University about the case. And Ryan and his wife were going to come up to Cottage City to look into this, but by then the family had already left for St. Louis. So a lot of what was reported in the infestation stage of this whole thing um, can mimic what we would call poltergeist activity, right. I mean, right. that, and that is part of the criteria to meet that before an exorcism can be done. Things have to be, you know, physical objects moved by paranormal means. That's one of the criteria, but again, that is, you know, that could just be an ordinary case of some kind. Um, right. It would just have to be, of course, be, I mean, it very rare that it could be a possession. So it wasn't until he got to St. Louis that things really kind of ratcheted up a notch and got even worse than they'd been in Maryland.
0: Interesting. interesting. Very interesting. So, um, when did, when did okay, you know, all this was going on. So when did his personality, you know, did they see his personality stuff start, start going on when this thing started, you know, attacking more?
1: Well, all of that really started in St. Louis. Um, okay. Originally uh, Roland was sharing a, a, um, a bedroom with his cousin, Neil, uh, at the home in Bel Nore. And um, Neil couldn't sleep because the bed kept shaking and things kept moving. And he witnessed, you know, things flying around the room. And that's about the time that Roland's personality really started to change. But oddly, only at night, um during the daytime even the priests involved in the case said that during the daytime he was a normal 13-year-old kid for 1949 he liked to read comic books and play baseball but at night when the exorcism would begin his entire persona would change that's when they began to notice he was using voices that were not his deep guttural voices um of course the you know the problems with the the, the language and the cursing all those things continued Uh, Some of the things that he said to the priests, um, some of which they recorded, some of which they didn't, uh, were often said to be prophetic things about what would happen to the men. As far as I know, none of them did, but things that he said were so vile and so um, concerning to the priests that they eventually, with all the violence going on, they realized they needed to get him out of the house. Now at this point they were coming on a nightly basis to conduct the exorcism rituals. Um, you know, people see movies and they think this uh-huh. is something that happens in a night or two. No, it went on for six weeks. During that time, Father Bowdern lost like forty pounds. Um, his health was in, at risk. Uh, Father Bishop, who was the the mentor that the cousin had gone to talk to, was still had to because they had to keep everything very quiet to protect. identity of the boy and to keep everything a secret he still had to go to work and do everything he needed to do every day father bowder was a pastor of a church he had things he had to take care of they had recruited some help because roland's father and uncle weren't enough to try to keep Roland on the bed he was actually getting up off the bed hitting people jumping around the room kicking them thrashing about so they recruited a man named um um Walter Halloran, who was um, an old friend of Father Bishop's. And he was much younger than the priests were. he was studying to be a Jesuit, but um, he was a big guy. He used to play uh, football, he'd been a boxer. And so they needed somebody who was burly who could help hold this kid down. He was the first person I was able to interview when I first got interested in the case. And I interviewed him several times over the years, um, he wouldn't—he wouldn't ever commit to the fact that he was convinced the boy was possessed. He just always said, "You know, I don't feel like I'm qualified to to answer that." But Father Bowdern believed it till the day he died, and uh, you know, he witnessed a lot of things. Um, Father Halloran told me that he had been there at the house one day, holding uh, Roland down onto the bed, and he said to me that the bed levitated, about. Four or five inches off the floor. Um, he said that there had been times when uh, Roland could he would come out, he'd, he'd be like in a trance and he'd be thrashing about, and with his eyes closed, he would vomit and kind of spit like a greenish mucus that would fly eight or ten feet and could hit people in the face, um, okay. and, and like a target with his eyes closed. Now, he couldn't explain that either. The smells, the you know, the constant urination, the screaming. Um, he said that once that Roland punched him in the face so hard, it broke his nose in two places. Um, and he'd never felt, he couldn't believe that this boy could have that kind of strength. He said it was like a grown man hitting me. And this was a skinny little kid, 13 years old, probably didn't weigh a hundred pounds soaking wet and yet was able to, you know, need four or five grown men to hold him down. And things just continued to get worse. Eventually, they moved him out of the house. Uh, They moved him to a rectory for a while. That didn't work. They eventually moved him to the Alexian Brothers Hospital, where they could put him in a locked room in the secure ward of the hospital um, to try and curb some of this violence. But things progressively got worse. I mean, the rituals were going on every night. The you know, they were still hearing the voices and they, they, the personality changes and things. Mm-hmm. Um, but they now they had a group of monks there at the Alexian Brothers Hospital who were able to help with the exorcism to try to hold this kid down, to try to keep him from, you know, really hurting someone. And, you know, he did hurt several people. Father Bowden was hurt a couple of times. Um, some of the monks were as well. Um, there were times he would attack the monks, three or four guys couldn't, couldn't fight him off. Um, the last interview that I did with anyone who was still alive from the case uh, was in 2014. I was contacted by the family of an Alexian monk who had been there at the hospital and had been part of the uh, exorcism. Now, I didn't know he was alive at the time. Um, I thought I had talked to everybody. And uh, he was in his late 80s. He kept the secret his whole life, but he had cancer and he was dying and wanted to tell his story. So I traveled up to Milwaukee to interview him. And some of the footage from our interview is in the documentary. And um, he told me flat out that he had absolutely no doubt that Roland really was possessed. Um, He had seen the things he'd seen happen, convinced him, including the day he was Helping with the exorcism, holding Roland's ankles down onto the bed. And he said that Roland himself, not the bed, Roland levitated at least a foot above the bed. And this was not, you know, it looked like or it seemed like this was absolutely this happened. And uh, he said that anybody who, you know, could have come into that room and witnessed what he saw would be crazy if they didn't believe he was genuinely possessed. So that was uh, that was that was quite an interview, as you can imagine. Wow. Um, I never well, like, talked to anybody who was that solid about what they'd seen.
0: Wow. Well, like we said, like like we were discussing earlier before we got cut off, you know, about um, the strength that you know a poltergeist versus versus something you know does dark. Uh, maybe we can go back over that since we got cut off on it.
1: Yeah, it's um it, there there is a difference, and you know we did talk. A little bit about you know the, the reverend schultz the lutheran minister who believed that this was you know a poltergeist case and, and always believed that for years mm-hmm. and uh because he'd only seen small things happening you know yes okay a bed shaking and a chair tipping over that's a big if we saw those things we would yeah. we would be startled by that but yeah. you know, he had an interest in psychic phenomena so to him it was all something natural and scientific that just hadn't been explained yet. He hadn't seen the, the darker side of all this. And Mm -hmm. there is a big difference. I mean, that's why the criteria for an exorcism um, includes poltergeist activity, but then it has to include, you know, a, a, a person who's possessed or allegedly possessed uh, being able to speak in other languages and being Mm -hmm. able to uh, you know, say things that there's no way they could know in any other way. Um, You know, the personality changes and all of that is all part of it that that don't come with a poltergeist case. They don't come with your average haunting that takes place in someone's house. This is something completely different, you know, that comes in stages and uh, definitely is much darker than anything that most, the majority, the vast majority of paranormal researchers and ghost hunters will ever encounter in their lifetime. I've never been involved in any case that I would deem to be called evil. Um, You know, I I don't do a lot of investigations anymore. Um, I used to do them all the time, weekly, Uh, but I've never been involved in anything that I've ever felt was demonic. Um, There's been times when, you know, the haunting has negative, you know, (laughs) aspects to it, but you, you know, usually you can write that off to being, you know, the negative aspects to a person who was alive and now was dead and was a real jerk when they were alive and so is their, you know, so's their afterlife, but not, not anything that I think involves demons.
0: Well, you know, one thing that people don't realize either is that the church tends to take a, I'm not going to say dim view on ghost centers, but they do because, you know, that's just, their, just the way the Catholic church believes, right? But when it comes down to these cases, it's the ghost hunters that are the ones that are in the line of fire because the church wants everything documented.
1: Yeah. Well, and yeah, when a lot of this stuff starts out, that is exactly what happens is, you know, you get whoever ends up on the ground floor of this thing is usually the first person to see what's happening. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the people that we interviewed for the documentary is a a pastor, a a priest from Indianapolis who is an exorcist. you know, and when he started out, and he's been doing it for like 30 years. And he said that a lot of the things that he has gone out on cases uh, to do exorcisms turns out to be more of an obsession. I mean, kind of the second step rather than an actual full blown possession. But he's been involved in those cases, too. And usually the people who bring it to his attention are, as you said, not the. Not the faithful who are in church every Sunday morning. It's the people who get called because people think their house is haunted. That's exactly what happened in this story. I mean, originally, um, Roland's mother and grandmother, who was living with him at the time, just thought the house was haunted. I mean, their dad, originally his dad thought they had rats and, you know, called an exterminator. But mom and grandma thought that the house was haunted, and they initially thought it was haunted by Aunt Tilly not doing the math that she was still alive when it started, but she made a good, a, a convenient scapegoat, at least at first. But they quickly, you know, realized that the house wasn't haunted. There was really something going on.
0: Have you been to the house since?
1: I have been to the house in Maryland. Um, I've been to the front door of the house in Maryland. Uh, the uh, When I was out, I was out, I did some filming a few years ago out of that area with a crew from England. And uh, when we went to the house to talk to the people, um, they had no idea of the history of their house. And when they were explained what what had happened there, they absolutely had zero interest in us, in us coming inside or doing anything with it. They were completely freaked out. Uh, so I've never been inside that house. Now the house in St. Louis, Yes, I've been there a number of times uh, over the years. And it is, um, I, you know, I, I, I'd I, love to tell you that it's, it's like super haunted or something, but yeah. it's really not. Yeah. Um, I do think there is some or has been some activity there, though. Um, and I would kind of write that off to being kind of something residual left over from all the drama that took place in that house uh, that maybe has left the place a little tainted or something. Um, mm-hmm. I did a... Um, I did a show guy I know does a um, has a radio show in St. Louis and every year at Halloween, he was always, he was always into always into the ghost stories and always into the exorcism story in particular. I, I don't, I've lost track of how many times I've done his show and talked about this case, but you know, one year he, he would, every Halloween he would take some of his listeners out to a haunted place. And then they had to, it was kind of a contest they did through the station. And they had to stay there for a certain amount of time. You, you get the idea. And you've probably seen it done a million times. But anyway, one year, um, the the location that they chose to use was the Exorcist House. They got permission to go to the house in Belnor and bring in three people. And he wanted me to come along. Um, he wanted me to be able to see the house. He also wanted me to, too. well, really, my job was just to scare the contestants, um, you know, when they realized where they were. And I didn't have to try to, <laughs> to, to scare them. All I had to do is tell them where they were, and that was enough. One of them left immediately. She quit. That She didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, the other two did decide to stay. Both of them were locked in an empty house. There was no one in the house. The entire crew, all of us were in the detached garage out back. They were locked in the the house by themselves and specifically locked in the room that Roland had shared with his cousin where the exorcism actually took place or where it began. Uh, One of them stayed in the room for 15 minutes. They were supposed to stay for an entire hour. He stayed in the room for 15 minutes. He kept, because we could hear him, he couldn't hear us. But as he was talking about his experience, he was talking about how he kept hearing sounds, kept seeing shadows at the door. Uh, he kept hearing footsteps. You know, he had to be convinced there was no one in the house with him. Um, he didn't stay, he got too freaked out and left. But the second person, their third really, the third contestant, this young woman, um, got into the room sat down in the chair and almost immediately began to hear noises and footsteps in the room with her. She said she could hear someone outside in the hallway. And I'm, I'm telling you, there was no one in the house. Right. And she said she could hear, see a shadow underneath the door. And then she said she heard this sliding noise in the room and she began reciting the Lord's prayer. And at that point she just started screaming I mean, blood curdling screams that we could hear outside and and over the microphone. And so she begged someone to come and get her and get her out of the house. She lasted four minutes. That's how long she made it. Wow. So wow. I'm not gonna. I, I still don't think the house is possessed or cursed or anything. I but I do think there is something that is you know lingering there. At least some energy left behind in the house, but. Yeah, I mean, if you drove by it and you didn't know what it was, you would have absolutely no, there's nothing about this house that would invite you to think there's anything strange about it. It's, in a, it's a nice house in a very nice neighborhood, and I, I, I got to think the neighbors cannot be thrilled with the attention the house has gotten, uh, but um, regardless, it's, you know, you'd never know if not for the fact that, you know, it's kind of gotten famous.
0: You know, I would think because of what did go on there that there's probably a portal open, but the priests were able to block the negative, you know, so whatever is there is just there.
1: Yeah, I I mean, it's I've heard that suggested, too, and that's certainly a possibility because uh, I do think there is, you know, I do think there's energy there. I just Mm -hmm. don't think it's anything active. Right. Um, It's maybe from what you're describing, maybe it's. um, I don't know, maybe it's some kind of leak or something, you know, just enough of something that gets out that causes things to happen. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I I don't think it's infested by anything. But, yeah, there's still there's something there.
0: Now, the question I have with all this is obviously it wasn't from the land where this thing came from. Did did it choose him randomly or, or, or what do they think?
1: Uh, apparently uh, no one really knows. There's, there's never been any, I mean, that's why I think that's the reason that the story about the Ouija board and Aunt Tilly got thrown into the mix because no one had any other explanation. There honestly isn't one uh, the priests never tried to explain it other than to say these things happen. I mean, there are things that you can do that invites these things in, obviously. Um, but mm-hmm. Roland never got involved in any of that kind of stuff. He was not, you know, mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, worshiping the devil or, or, you know, practicing black magic or anything else, including using a Ouija board. But for some reason, whatever this thing was, it, it got attached to him. Uh, it sought him out. And um, I, I don't know why. I, I wish I did. Uh, everyone involved wished they knew. Uh, Because, you know, when when the two priests who got involved in this, you know, Father Bowden and Father Bishop, they were not exorcists. There there really weren't any exorcists to speak of in the United States at the time. Um, These two guys were, were pushed into doing this reluctantly and then were trying to find any information they could on exorcisms. And there just wasn't really much that was contemporary for them. So that's why they kept this diary. They wanted to put it together as a how-to guide for the next generation of exorcists. But they didn't have any idea of what started it. They wished they knew so that they could tell them what to watch out for. But they didn't know. They just didn't know. None of us do to this day. No one can tell you.
0: So originally, because um, it happened in the one house, then they moved, uh, you know, they obviously moved. Did they move because they thought that it was the house itself?
1: No, the reason they left Maryland in the first place was they thought that maybe by, you know, that it it, it had, they thought that it had ended up in their house.
0: Okay. You know, whatever
1: this thing was that was affecting Roland might be in their house. And they thought that maybe by going to St. Louis, where they're where they were from, where they had family that maybe they could shake this thing loose and get away from it. Um, and it, it wasn't the house. It, it it was Roland and it followed Roland. It came with him to St. Louis. Um, you know, after they, after the exorcism ended in, in April of 1949, a couple of weeks later, they went back to St. Louis. Um, they were never bothered by anything in St. Louis again. They were never bothered by anything in Maryland again. In fact, Roland went the rest of his life without any kind of problems or, or, or even memories, honestly. Um, when I interviewed him uh, in the 2000s, he had no memory of anything that had happened during the exorcism. Um, he did remember being in St. Louis. He remembered being with his family. But as far as the exorcism itself, he told me he had no memory of it. Turns out that's not uncommon, according to, you know, a priest I spoke with. That that commonly happens. But um, his statement to me was that it when he been told about what had occurred and the things that had happened, that he felt like he was being told about someone else's life uh, because he had no memories of it. Um, and he went on to have a, a perfectly normal, in fact, probably better than average life. Uh, he uh, he finished school, he finished college, he got married, had a family, uh, went to work for uh, in the space industry. In fact, he still has a patent in his name for the shielding that is used on rockets to keep them from burning up when they hit <laughs> the atmosphere. Um, he's one of the guys who invented that and his name is on the patent. Um, he lived a, a a normal life. In fact, he just passed away last year. Uh, so this is a case of where, um, you know, whatever this was, you know, which which, that's what kind of brings me to all the you know the the people who want to debunk this story and say, oh, yeah. it must have been a mental illness, or it must have been he must have been faking it, you know. Um, well, let's say let's say it was something like a physical or a mental illness. Mm-hmm. the doctors couldn't find anything at the hospital, but let's say that's what it was. But then how do we explain the fact that it's miraculously cured mm-hmm. at, the of, at the end of April, because he never suffered from any of the symptoms ever again. Uh, a psychiatrist that I interviewed told me that there isn't any one criteria, any, anything that happened in this case, he could not take any of those things and link it to one diagnosis. It, it just didn't exist. I mean, he couldn't do it. I mean, there are lots of suggestions that it's, schizophrenia or i've even heard tourette's all kinds of things but how did he get cured well that's just as magical as an exorcism you know um a lot of people have said that you well, know, maybe it was a hoax well you know i could see maybe some of the things that happened in maryland you could write off as a hoax but how do you continue a hoax for you know four months you know with priests and and all of these monks and all of these other people they would have caught on to this at some point, if it was a hoax. I, I don't believe that's the case. Um, so, you know, this this thing, this this really happened. And I think that's what makes it scarier than anything else is there is no explanation as to why it happened to Roland, why it went away, um, other than to say the exorcism worked. Um, even it, let's say it was an illness. Well, somehow it still worked. So who cares? You know, you know who cares what right. it was then, it actually, it worked. But um, I do believe that it was, um, I do believe it was a real possession of, of, of some kind. I'm not sure that uh, the, the Catholic Church and I are on the same page when it comes to demons, but I do think that it was something, something sinister, something diabolical, I guess, if you want to use that term, uh-huh. that affected this boy, and it was forced out of him by the exorcism that took place
0: so my question is this it was a, the exorcism took place over a certain amount of time how long was because you know from the start to the finish of all this how long was that was a month
1: or a year Or well, a it started in january mid-january of 1949 okay. and it ended at the end of april in 1949 okay. so okay. that's that's uh four months you know yeah. the, the start to finish and the exorcism started about, um, well, the exorcism, the, the actual exorcism lasted about six weeks. But the entire case lasted about four months.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. What do you, what, what, what did you, I mean, uh, I know you're doing your research and stuff. And I know we've talked, you know, we've been talking about this. But for you, as with, with your experience doing this stuff, what were the red flags for you?
1: What do you mean? Um like problems. Well,
0: as far as what was going on with him, that that maybe like you talked about the, the first minister obviously didn't pick the stuff pick up on it because he, he was the Catholic guy. But well, I mean in the beginning, I mean explain to people, I mean like there's there certain levels of possession. Right. We talked right. about that kind of so yes. can you explain that for people?
1: Yeah, well, you know, uh when the when the case started. Um, later, you know, in hindsight, as the case is studied. And by going by the criteria of other possessions uh, throughout history and people who have worked on them, the case began with what they call the infestation stage, which is a lot like a haunting. Um, It is this presence who was interacting with Roland and with the family, you know, causing the initial things to happen, the the scratching inside the wall, the footsteps they were hearing, the banging noises, the shaking bed. Um, then from there, it it's ramps up a notch to what they call the obsession phase, which is when the presence begins to personally interact with the person and causes them to do things. Now, apparently, according to Catholic criteria, that's not yet a possession. This isn't a point where uh, Roland's personality had changed. It was a point where he was beginning to react to this presence um, in him, um, on him, in him, in um, Manipulating him, causing things to happen. That's when the, you know, the the trances started, the thrashing, the uh, the convulsions, the seizures, the you know, the screaming, the banging, the noises. Um, all of that stuff was part of the second phase, and it really didn't um, change much in Maryland. It was enough to scare the family, of course, uh, because there were things. Happening around him, you know, with the bed moving, the furniture moving, the things that happened at, um, you know, uh, Reverend Schultz's house with the chair and the bed. Um, And at that point, the family got so scared they thought it was a good idea to go to St. Louis. And uh, once he got to St. Louis, things progressively got worse. Um, But we're still in an obsession stage until things became so violent that Ronnie or Roland's cousin decided that she needed to contact the priests and at that point they were witnessing things that they believed were a possession that was his personality changing the voices the um, the things that he said to them that you know he couldn't have known um, at the first at the beginning he wasn't speaking in any foreign languages or anything that didn't develop until later um, and that was became part of the case later on. Uh, but not in the beginning. Um, things became worse. There, there has been some argument as to when the exorcism began, if Roland was really possessed or was still at the obsession stage. I don't think it matters. I mean, you're 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 nitpicking at that point. Uh, but you know, it did become what the priests believed was a full-blown possession, and that's when the exorcism became very important to keep. Roland from getting worse, because as things went on, he became more and more violent. And, uh, you know, the belief is, is that if you do not get this out of this kid or anyone who's possessed at this point, if you don't get that, out, if you don't stop it, eventually it will kill them. Uh, It will lead to their death. And that might not be a supernatural force that's killing them. It could be a physical one because you know, his body was ravaged by this. I mean, he lost all kinds of weight and this is a kid who couldn't afford to lose weight. Um, You know, he had sores on his body, Uh, he had hives, he had boils, Um, you know, eventually without the proper nourishment and the proper food and, and medical care, someone, not in this case, they were smart enough to take Roland to a hospital, but someone who was left unattended in this kind of situation theoretically they, they could die from it. Um, so that I think would be the, you know, the end of this whole entire case, if he had been allowed and left untreated and allowed to die. Um, I'm sure it's, you know, if we believe in all of the the history of exorcism, if we look at all of the reports from the past that are true, there have been people who have died, uh, who were allegedly possessed. Um, But, you know, we look at it in a different way today. I mean, we look at it from a a different eye because there are explanations for a lot of the historical symptoms of possessions in the past. And, you know, that's why it was good that the family took Roland to the hospital, that they ran a battery of tests. I mean, it could have been, you know, some sort of mental illness. And I think in the past, there were lots of cases of mental illness and schizophrenia and things that. No one knew how to diagnose. I mean, that that, the kinds of things that people suffer from today that we're well familiar with, people suffered from those same things hundreds of years ago. Our body chemistry has not changed that much. So, people who you know were mentally ill back then were often believed to be possessed, and so you know, uh, a lot of people died, and it had nothing to do with the fact that the Priests didn't do a good enough exorcism. It's the problem that they didn't need an exorcism. They needed modern medicine, which wouldn't right. be around right. for hundreds of years.
0: Well, a good example of that, too, is the Salem Witch trials.
1: Yeah. I'm it's- sure some of
0: those women were bipolar or whatever when they, you know, when they convicted
1: them. Yeah. Or, I mean, there was, you know, there was a hysteria, a religious hysteria that. I think played a very large part in the Salem witch trials that had nothing to do with real witchcraft. Um, I think that was, you know, a case of her her religious mania gone berserk. I I don't think that had anything to, I don't think these women were what we would consider witches. I mean, there were a handful of them that practiced folk medicine, but well, everybody did back then. I mean, every town had someone who was a healer, who was your local doctor because there were no doctors. Oh, there was no medical school, you know, you became a doctor by reading a book about medicine and that was about it, you know, and in trying your luck at at treating people. So every town, every community had someone who learned how to use the, you know, the herbs and, and the things that, you know, they could treat people. And, you know, back then that was the local witch. Well, you know, come on. You know, you know, we don't we don't think of those same people today as witches. I mean, a lot of them say they are, but that's that's a terminology we use now. But I agree with you. It, it definitely could have been someone with some sort of illness who, you know, went into a seizure or something. And you blame that on the, you know, the local old lady who's supposed to be a witch. And things spin been out of control because Salem certainly weren't the those weren't the only witch trials or the only women hung as witches in colonial New England. There were hundreds of them, and that's, that's a tragic part of our history. That now we can on religion. So. Right, right.
0: Now my next question is, how long did it take you to research all this about the Exorcist House? And was it difficult getting people to go on record with you?
1: Well, I started researching it in the mid-90s more as a project than as a book um my plan was to eventually turn it into a book i wrote several articles and things about it and eventually in 2006 i put out the first edition of the book so let's say i spent maybe 10 years doing the research on it i don't normally spend that long but this this story i mean this book is now in its third edition i mean i have updated it several times over the years because New material does occasionally turn up, even though at this point now, there's no one left alive, but I do have material that I've not been able to use because one of the agreements that I made with uh, Roland in the first place when I interviewed him was that I wouldn't use his name and use his personal family material. Um, Since then, he's passed away and I'm going to give it some time uh, before I, you know, write more about the case, which really just doesn't do anything to make the family less believable. It makes them more believable mm-hmm. um, because now we have a real person behind this story. Um, but yeah, I mean, I that was that was something that uh, I got someone to agree to. As far as the, as far as the priests and some of the people personally involved, um, they were welcome. They were happy to talk about it um, because it had been by that time it had been you know forty years and so they were willing to talk about the things that they had seen and the things they had witnessed um i you know i've got some access to some stuff that you know was eventually opened that's that's how i keep ended up with multiple copies or multiple editions of the book because something will become available that wasn't available before um unfortunately there are still people who do like to spin the legend of the story, as far as the not necessarily accurate versions of things, uh-huh. um, and I do spend a lot of time, you know, researching those things to try to get uh, an accurate picture of what happened. That's that's always been my thing, is to try and present the true story of everything that happened, and you know pass that along to people because I think there's something, you know, there's something worthwhile about the story. Um, you know, uh, it depends on how you want to look at it. There's multiple ways to look at the story as far as, you know, whether you're a person who has a lot of faith, you know, and and believe that it was a demonic possession, you know, that it, it's, it's a sign that the church was victorious in the story. Um, there are lots of ways to look at it. And I think that, overall it's it's scary because this is something that could happen to anybody i mean there's no reason it happened to roland so you know that's that's kind of one of the things that that bothers me more than anything about it is that you know is it, it could happen to anybody uh, theoretically so, right. you know, and I'd say, you know, be careful, watch out, but how do you do that? You know, you can't, you're, you're uh, not yeah, he wasn't doing
0: anything he wasn't supposed right. to be doing. That's right. what's writing about
1: it. it. Went to school, you know, I mean, you know, junior high school kid. So what, what, you know, what do you say about that? Only that, you know, this stuff is real. It can happen. And maybe a warning of what you should do if it does happen to you, maybe. I I don't know. Uh, You know, um, I I think that it's a it's 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 a story that I think will always be compelling to people because, you know, uh, I think it really happened. I mean, there's plenty of people who, you know, love to debunk this kind of stuff. But this Uh is it's a tough one to debunk. It really is. Once you really dig into the story, it's pretty hard.
0: My other question is is too. Uh, I know the church has to, the, the Vatican has to give permission for this stuff. I mean, obviously, it didn't take them long to get permission. Did they go through the Vatican or did they just yeah. talk to? No. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, actually, the the, uh, the head of your archdiocese can um, can you know let you perform an exorcism. That's who you have to okay. get. You've still got bosses above you. I mean, it's just like being a priest is just like any other job. The the, the priests are the guys that are on the factory floor, and then they've got a supervisor, and then there's a supervisor above him. So you go to the bishop, then you go to the monsignor, and that's how you get permission. And that's exactly what happened in this particular story. They went to see um, the, the bishop who was the head of St. Louis University at the time. His father bishop was on staff there. Um, father Bowdern was the pastor at the what's known as University Church. Saint Francis Xavier, which is still there. And um, so they went to him and he sent them to the to the archbishop. And then they went to talk to him to find out if this is something that they could do. And he did give them permission uh, on the um, you know, with the with the, the the idea that they had to keep this a secret. Um, And it wasn't because it wasn't for any reason that you might think Um, it wasn't because they were embarrassed or because they didn't believe the story. Uh, What you have to know about what was going on in the Catholic Church in St. Louis in 1949 is that when all this was happening, they were in the middle of desegregating their churches and schools in the city, which was very, very unpopular at the time remember it's 1949 it's a different world back then but this was a very unpopular thing and they were taking a lot of heat for that so the archbishop did not want this to be in the newspapers because that just gave ammunition to the people who were already you know coming down hard on the church so you know this was something at that time and exorcism was something from the middle ages I mean, people just weren't doing them. And if they were, no one was talking about it. So they weren't gonna talk about this case either. It's not that he didn't believe that it wasn't real because he did give them permission to do it. He just wanted them quiet. And so that's where the permission came from. Um, when it was all over, um, he sealed the records. He didn't want them to be made public. He felt that that was counterproductive um, because it just gave people more ammunition to complain about things. So. Uh, Things were kept secret, uh, even though uh, the investigation afterward did say that they believed that it was genuine and that paranormal activity did take place. In fact, 44 people signed affidavits that went into the report that said they had witnessed paranormal phenomena. Um, But the diary that was kept was kept under lock and key. Uh, Father Bishop made uh, seven copies and um, eventually they did leak out. One was kept, the one that leaked uh, was kept at the Alexian Brothers Hospital in the room where the exorcism had occurred. Uh, that is, it sounds like an urban legend that they came to tear it down and the workmen found it in a drawer. That sounds fake, but it actually happened. <laughs> that That's why we have, the public has access to the diary now. I mean, I've had a copy for, well, since the nineties. Um, so it is out there, you can't find it now. Uh, but for a long time, it wasn't available.
0: Interesting. And to clarify for the people that have seen the movie, a lot of that stuff did not happen. There was no spider walk or anything like that, right? Oh no, no, no,
1: no. No, that, that kind of stuff. And then the levitation that took place, I mean, there was a levitation that occurred according to witnesses who were there. But it wasn't like, you know, up to the ceiling and, you know. He didn't stay up there for a half an hour while the exorcism was going on. Just something that happened and then it stopped. Um so, you know, a, a lot of that stuff that is in the movie is great. It's a great movie, don't get me wrong. But um, yeah, it's it's definitely uh it was definitely embellished for dramatic purposes. That's what we can safely say that. <laughs> so,
0: very interesting. Troy, this has been great. I wanted to talk to you about this for a while and I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Glad to do it. So
0: I'd love to get you back on at some point if that's all right.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just stay in touch. We'll uh we'll we'll put something together and again in the future.
0: All right. Where can people get your book?
1: Uh you can actually go to my website, which is I mean, you can get it from Amazon or wherever, but if you go to the website and get it at AmericanHauntings.net, you'll get a signed copy when you order it. You won't get that at Amazon. So there's my plug for the little guy.
0: <laughs> and where can people see your documentary?
1: Now that is on Discovery+. Plus, and uh, that is their new streaming service that started earlier this year. It's 5 bucks a month. You got access to, you know, all the shows they do on the Travel Channel, you know, Ghost Adventures and Dead Files, all that stuff. But you can find the documentary. It's called Shock Docs, The Exorcism of Roland Doe. And uh, you will see my uh, ugly mug on there talking about uh, all the things that happened during the exorcism.
0: Well, I know what I'm going to be watching. This evening.
1: All right, cool. Right all right. I'm
0: so glad you came on. I've been wanting to be, to see you face to face for a long time. And I'm so glad I got to do it. Me too. And I, really, I really appreciate it, sir. I really well, do. Absolutely I have a lot of respect you. for you. And I've read a lot of your books and, you know, you know, it's just, it's just, Something. If there's a paranormal idol, you're it. You know, for me. So. Oh, oh,
1: oh, gosh. Well, thanks. <laughs> That's flattering. Thank you.
0: <laughs> All right, sir. Well, thank you very much, and I absolutely.
1: It. All right, take All care. Right, Troy.
0: You Bye. too. Bye. It was cool. I had fun with Troy. So have have a good one, guys. Bye.